0: A son asked his father the inevitable question, Dad, where do babies come from? Well, the father figured it was time for the talk. And so he explained the birds and the bees to his son. Well, when the talk was over, the little boy, he looks up at his dad and he asks, Dad, does God know about this? Well, the Song of Solomon proves that yes, God knows about sex. Sex is not Hollywood's invention, it was God's idea. Genesis 1 verse 27 tells us that when God created the male and the female, He instructed them to become one flesh, a Hebrew euphemism for sexual intercourse. And whatever God creates, God commands. He has guidelines for every area of our life, including sexual expression. You know, you can make a trip down to the local bookstore and you'll find countless sex manuals from the so-called sex experts but there's only one instruction manual from the authority from God the creator God designed sexual expression and he tells us how to experience maximum intimacy and enjoyment in the song of Solomon Well as you remember from last time chapters 2 and 3 Solomon's bride the Shulamite she flashed back to her country courtship, to Solomon's proposal and to their honeymoon. The king had come for her in his palanquin, a mobile honeymoon cottage, as it were. It was a covered couch carried on poles by strong men. The couple made love from Lebanon, from the mountains, all the way down to Jerusalem. And in chapter 4, where we are tonight, we eavesdrop in On the lover's intimate conversation. In verse 1, Solomon speaks to his bride Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Notice Shula is wearing a veil. In other words, sexy lingerie. An old pastor friend said to a young pastor, Charlie Shedd, he said, son, you've got to save money somewhere. But there are two places where you should never cut back. Never try to save money on food or your wife's lingerie. And I agree. Men, a woman will act sexy if she feels sexy, and she'll feel sexy if she looks sexy. So sell your car. (laughs) Refinance your house. Put off shoes for the kids. But whatever you do, don't cut back on your wife's lingerie budget. Kathy knows that she has unlimited funds for sexy lingerie. Well, Solomon continues by complimenting her hair. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, imagine standing off at a distance and watching a single file line of black-haired goats heading down a mountainside. That's what he's getting at. It, It would look like locks cascading down the temples of her head. Now, fellas, hair like goat's hair may not mean as much to your wife as it did to the Shulamite. You might have to come up with a suitable translation here. But here's what I want you to catch from this. Solomon can spin a phrase... You know, tragically, some husbands are all hands. But notice Solomon knows how to touch his wife with words rather than just paw all over her. For a whole chapter, Solomon is going to sexually arouse his wife by whispering compliments in her ear. Gentlemen, take notes. Solomon's talk and his tenderness Then his touch worked to bring the Shulamite to sexual satisfaction. Now he continues here in verse 2. He says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Baby, you got beautiful teeth. You had a great orthodontist when you were a kid. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. And your mouth is lovely. Now notice you don't come up with this kind of imagery on the spur of the moment. At least most of us don't. I mean obviously here Solomon has given some time and some effort. Some advanced thought and preparation to come up with this kind of wording. He says your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. In a disarming and in a very gentle manner Solomon here is moving in under the veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Solomon compliments his wife on her jewelry. He compares her neck to a weapons depot. (laughs) Baby, you got a lot of hardware. And notice, and notice, notice men, Solomon is working his way down her body. Working his way down. Verse 5 he whispers. Your two breasts are like two fawns. Twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Fawns are perky and youthful. He says until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh. And to the hill of frankincense. And I'll just let you guess what he means by mountain of myrrh and hill of frankincense. He does say, though, until the day breaks, man, they'll save sleep for another night. Now, men, don't mistake. Don't make a mistake here. You are watching a skilled lover at work. Notice, guys, he doesn't just jump right in and go for the big splash. He moves slowly and gently, lovingly lingering over every inch of her body. He shows some self-restraint here. Guys, what an incredible concept. Self-restraint. This is what he shows. And he takes his time to tell his wife how beautiful she is to him. Now, In verse 8 he says, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. She's been thinking about her home back in Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir, from Hermon, from the lion's den's. From the mountains of the lepers. You know, recall just a few days earlier, they were in Lebanon. And here Solomon senses that her mind is wandering. And and so what does he do? He addresses her concerns. You know, sometimes before a wife is ready for sex, she first needs to talk. And so discuss her day. How are the kids doing? A wise husband resists the urge to just get on with it. Solomon says in verse 9, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love, and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. It's a pretty passionate kiss, I think. Evidently, the Hebrews knew about this kind of kissing long before the French took credit for it. In verse 12, Solomon compares the Shulamite's sexuality to a garden. He says, a garden enclosed... Is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed? You see, while she was single, the gates to her garden had been sealed shut. But now on their wedding night, they've swung open to Solomon. And he's being invited to enter into the garden and enjoy its delights. In fact, he takes us on a tour here in verse 12. He says, your plants are like an orchid of pomegranates, with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. You know, understand gardens in the Middle East were more than just a row, a couple of rows of tomatoes. Those gardens, were like an oasis in the desert. You see, these were private gardens that were cultivated behind thick, tall walls. Inside, in the, inside the walls, there were springs and there were waterfalls. There were trees and flowers and aromatic blossoms. Paths would weave their way through these oriental gardens. Along the walkways, there were little private coves where you could sit down in the grass... And you could relax and enjoy the shade. It was all an effort to take in the scents and the sights. These were places that were safe and exclusive and were for your enjoyment. And then even on occasion, the desert winds would sort of blow through the garden. And they would lift the scents above the walls. And would make the garden enjoyable for those that were outside. You see, prior to marriage, the Shulamite was a garden enclosed. The gates were barred. Before marriage, this garden was full of spices and sweets, but it was owned by the Shulamite alone. But on her wedding night, she invites Solomon to enter her garden. She even whispers to him in verse 16, she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. This is pretty sexy language. She's saying, tonight, someone from outside the garden is going to enjoy its pleasures. You know, what a priceless, special gift to be able to give your spouse one day. I hope every single person desires to give this same special treasure to their future spouse. Make sure that your garden remains a garden enclosed. And then she adds... Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. Notice again, she's not just tolerating sex here, she's enticing. She's egging him on. She wants him to arouse her passion and to bring her to satisfaction. Always remember, the goal of sex is the mutual fulfillment of both partners. Husbands and wives should be givers, not just takers. The best sex is joint satisfaction. Now chapter 5 verse 1 tells us how Solomon responded to her sexual advances. He says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Obviously, he, he's accepted her invitation. and His hunger has been quenched. Now many Bible commentators believe that the next line is actually the voice of God putting his stamp of approval on the sex that has been shared between the marriage of Solomon and the Shulamite. The line reads, Eat, O friends! Drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones! It's as if God is saying, Yes, come, this is good. Remember from the very beginning, God said that it was good. You know, honeymoons are wonderful times. Sadly, though, there comes a point when the bliss of the honeymoon ends And the duties of the married life begin. You know, here's a list of a few ways to identify when the honeymoon is over. The dog brings your slippers and your wife barks at you. The honeymoon is over. He finds out he married a big spender and she finds out she didn't. The honeymoon is over. She stops making a fuss over her husband and starts fussing with him. The honeymoon's over. The honeymoon's over when the bride goes from saying, I do, to saying, you'd better. Well, here in chapter 5, verse 2, we learn that the honeymoon is over for Shlomo and Shula. In fact, the Shulamite has a dream that warns her about some bad attitudes that are creeping into her relationship with Solomon. She says here in verse 2, I sleep... But my heart is awake. In other words, I'm dreaming. This is a dream she has. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks. Saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Solomon is getting home late from work. It must have been the wee hours of the morning because his clothes are soaked with the dew. And he wants into the queen's bedroom to initiate intimacy. But she rebuffs him. In verse 3, she offers some really lame excuses. Ladies, please don't try these. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? And Solomon's thinking, baby, don't worry about that robe. With what I've got in mind, your robe is the last thing that you'll need. She says again, I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? All of a sudden, she's got a clean foot fetish. I can't get out of bed. I already washed my feet. Another flimsy excuse. Here's what's happening. She's gotten lazy. Here's a wife who just doesn't want to be bothered. You know, at times, a wife gets tired There's times when she doesn't feel particularly sexy. But she can still give herself to her husband. She can bless him because she loves him. You know, there is a lot in marriage for both husbands and wives. That doesn't always excite us at all times. But we do it anyway, don't we? Because it makes a statement to our spouse. It assures them of our love. And it keeps the marriage healthy. And it's important that we that we do it. Well the Shulamite recalls here in verse 4 my beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock it was an oriental custom for a lover to leave a pouch of spice or perfume at the opening of the room I opened my beloved For my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. In other words, by the time the Shulamite had sort of checked her attitude and decided to open the door to let Solomon in, he was gone. She says, my heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. What's happened here? Solomon has been spurned. His fragile male ego has been crushed. And ladies, let me emphasize... Fragile male ego. It's very fragile. And she realizes he's been hurt, and so she races out into the streets to find him and to apologize. Hey, I want to say this to you ladies. Please hear me because I am convinced that the vast majority of women don't understand how important sex is to their husband. Ladies, let me ask you a question. How many wives? here tonight, desire conversation with their husbands? Just, just raise your hand. How many of you desire conversation with your husband? Yeah, great. Probably all of you. How many of you would think that there would be something terribly wrong in your marriage if conversation were lacking? Probably all of you. Well, wives, hear this. Sex is to a husband what conversation is to a wife. Ladies, when the world beats him down, when his boss mistreats him, when he pulls up short of his goals, sex is your tool to prop up his confidence and assure him that to you he is still the most desirable guy in the world. One author puts it, sex is a confidence booster, a solace for injured pride, a psychological upward thrust when his soul cries out for a lift. You see, a sensitive woman can use her sensual charms to pump air back into her husband's deflated sails. Through sex, she can make everything right in his world, at least for a few moments. She encourages his manhood. And ladies, even when you do have to turn him down, remember that fragile male ego, and please do it gently. One author writes this, When you have to reject your spouse's sexual advances... Do it as softly as you can. When a husband is turned down, he may fail down not just for missing out on a moment of pleasure, but his manhood gets rejected. An affirmation can make the rejection less painful. I just can't get with it tonight, honey. But I know I won't be able to stay away from a man like you for long. Well, that eases him down a little more gently. And make sure those rejections... Please make sure those rejections are few and far between. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that our bodies are not our own. Paul writes in verse 4 there, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Therefore, verse 5, Do not deprive one another. And the reason, he says, So that Satan does not tempt you, Because of your lack of self-control. Every married couple needs to understand that sex should be three things. It should be fun. It should be fulfilling. And perhaps most importantly, it should be frequent. Well, verse 7 tells us. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. Now, the queen would have never been tortured in real life. Remember, though, this was a dream. What's happening here is that she feels so guilty that it's caused her to have this nightmare. Her neglect and her selfishness have tortured her conscience. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am lovesick. She puts the maidens on the lookout. If they see Solomon, tell him, I'm sick with love. She wants to patch things up. You know, before we go further, we do need to look at this from a spiritual parallel. For how often have you and I spurned the advances of Jesus? How often have we been too tired to pray or to read our Bibles or to get alone and spend time with Him? How how often have we been reluctant to get up and to obey when the Lord laid a particular command on our heart? I think some of us also need to apologize to the lover of our soul, to our Lord Jesus. Well, the daughters of Jerusalem, they sing in verse 9, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? In other words, why is your husband so special? And it sets the Shulamites up for her response here in verse 10. She says, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. This is why I love him so. This is why he's so special. Now keep in mind that a sexual chill has sort of settled over the Shulamite's marriage. She needs to thaw out and warm up to her husband again. And she does this in three ways. And you might want to jot these three things down, ladies. The first thing she does is she develops a new attitude toward her husband's body. A new attitude toward her husband's body. In other words, she makes a change in her thinking. She begins to think of her husband sexually. Listen to her now in verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy. The word ruddy there means healthy, robust, virile. She calls him chief among 10,000. And then she begins to describe him. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. Now notice, she's fantasizing about his strong hands. And she actually envisions her, his torso in her mind. Now, now notice this. So far in their relationship, only Solomon has described the body of his spouse. But now, the Shulamite bride is describing Solomon's body. Notice what's happening here. She's training her mind to think sexually about her husband. And she too starts with the hair and works her way down. In fact, she gets down to the ivory portion of his body. That's the area where the sun never shines. It just stays white all the time. And the sapphire inlays are the blood vessels running underneath the skin. She says in verse 15, His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. In other words, she's turned on by the strength of his legs. I mean, he's got sexy calves. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yes. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, oh daughters of Jerusalem. In other words, eat your heart out, girls. You know, to some women, the word husband has become a synonym for words like provider, and dad, and nice guy, and coach. And even friend. But they've stopped associating the term husband with lover. Ladies, this is important. Wives should view their husband's body as God's gift to satisfy them sexually. There's nothing wrong with thinking about your husband in an erotic and sensual and sexual way. In, in these verses, the Shulamite is daydreaming about Solomon's features. And what's it doing? It's breaking the chill that settled over their marriage, it's arousing passion. And in chapters 6 and 7, the Shulamite takes a second step to break the chill and renew the sexual expression in their marriage. She expresses a new sexual aggressiveness. Solomon returns. From a royal business trip. In verse 1 her girlfriends ask her. Where has your beloved gone? O fairest among women. Where has your beloved turned aside? That we may seek him with you. And I'm sure she doesn't trust their intentions at all. She replies in verse 2. My beloved has gone to his garden. To the beds of spices. To feed his flocks in the gardens. And to gather lilies. I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. Get get away from him, girls. I got this guy. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Remember, she was a lily, she said earlier in the song. And she's saying to these palace princesses that though he's been away on business, his heart still belongs to her. Now, while he's been away, the Shulamite has cultivated a new attitude. And she can't wait to show Solomon her new sexual aggressiveness. She's going to make sure that they have a wonderful time making up. Solomon speaks in verse 4. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. You look Magnificent. Baby, you look more beautiful than an army marching to war under colorful flags. I mean, you could translate for this. You could translate this for your wife. You could say, baby, you're more beautiful than the bulldogs running into Sanford Stadium on an autumn afternoon. That's what he's saying. He says, turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Again, that goat hair line. I tried this line on Kathy the other night. And she said to me, she said, Sandy, that's a bad joke. You really got my goat with that. Verse 6, your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Every one bears twins and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. Remember, this is exactly how Solomon addressed the Shulamite on their wedding night. Now, since then, she's spurned him. But he harbors no resentment. He's forgiven her. His feelings for her are the same as they've always been. Solomon's love for his bride was a forgiving, unconditional love. And men, this is the surest way for your wife to open up and and to want to draw close to you is if you show her that same kind of unconditional, unselfish love. And again, notice the parallel in our relationship with Jesus. How often have we spurned our Lord? And yet he forgives, doesn't he? He forgives. His love for us never changes. Jesus harbors no resentment toward us. His grace is truly amazing grace. And then in verse 8, Solomon mentions the size of his harem at this time. He says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Now, obviously, God's preference was monogamous marriage. For at creation, God fashioned one man and one woman to live together for a lifetime. And yet for a season, because of man's sin, God tolerated polygamy. Evidently, in Solomon's day, multiple wives and concubines were the oriental custom for a king. Today, though, that tolerance is over. For with the forgiveness of Jesus and with the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts, God now insists on monogamy. Jesus reaffirmed the order of creation. That God's will for marriage was for one man and for one woman to be bound together for a lifetime. It's interesting though, here Solomon, who who was probably the history's most infamous polygamist, his marriage to the Shulamite, at least for a time, portrayed God's ideal. He he says of her in verse 8, My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. I mean, even in this large harem he had, she was the only one that he truly loved, that he was truly committed to. She was the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. She alone occupied his heart. And he admires her in verse 10. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, Clear as the sun. Awesome as an army with banners. And the Shulamite responds. I went down to the garden of nuts. To see the verdure of the valley. In other words the greenness or the lushness of the valley. To see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. You know apparently part of the reason this chill had settled over their marriage. It had been caused by the cold weather. It didn't get quite cold. You can have some cold, harsh winters there in Jerusalem. She wasn't used to the urban cold. She longed to return to the countryside where it was warmer. She enjoyed the springtime of the year. And so as she looks out and sees the signs of spring, and has renewed her enthusiasm. Verse 12, she says, Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. Solomon comes home in verse 13. And he wants to see his bride. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. And here's the way every wife should greet her husband when he comes home. From a trip, or even from a hard day at work. Solomon wants a peek at the Shulamite. And his eyes are about to get more than he ever anticipated. At the end of chapter 6, she asks Solomon if she can dance for him. What would you see in the Shulamite, as it were? The dance of the two camps? She introduces the dance of the double camp. Or in the Hebrew, the Mahanaim. To renew and demonstrate her love. She, she says she wants to dance for her husband. And let me just say, this is not the foxtrot. This is no square dance here. This is a very sensual, sexy, seductive dance. This is adult entertainment provided to a husband by his wife with the intention of pleasing him sexually. The Shulamite performs a strip tease. and Solomon loves every single second... Of her expression of love. Solomon comments in chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet. In sandals. O prince's daughter. Solomon notes his wife's sandals. But you'll, you'll notice for the rest of the dance. That's the last stitch of clothing that he mentions. For apparently that's all she had on. A pair of sandals. He says the curves of your thighs ...are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. That phrase, curves of your thighs, it's best translated, the vibration of your hips. Hey, Shula understands that men are turned on by sight. And so she's providing Solomon with some visual stimulation... She's ditched whatever inhibition she's had. And she is definitely here being the initiator and being the aggressor. Notice verse 2. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Apparently while Solomon had been on this business trip, the Shulamite must have taken some belly dancing lessons. Because here her navel is gyrating like a blender. He says your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Hey, I'm just reading this, okay? I'm not, I didn't write it. God wrote this, I didn't write this. He, He says, your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. You know, a bundle of wheat gets tied in the middle and it forms this hourglass shape. You know, while she's dancing, Solomon's getting a good look at her body and he's complimenting her figure. Then verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Brabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon which looks toward Damascus. And with all due respect for Solomon, men... When your wife dances like this for you, I would please stay away from the nose compliments. For my wife, the nose comparisons would slow down the gyrations. <laughs> Stick with the navel as a rounded goblet and it lacks no blended beverage. That's that's where you want to focus right there. Stay away from the nose. Verse five. I've been married twenty-nine years. I know just stay away from the nose, okay? The nose don't go toward the nose. Verse five, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. In Solomon's day, purple was the color of royalty, and so either he's saying that the Shulamite's hair had this royal, majestic appearance, or she was a punk rocker, one or the other. Notice this, though. The king was controlled by no one, and yet Solomon says there's one exception. The locks of the Shulamite's hair bound his heart like iron bars. How romantic. He says, how fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine. The fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine." Apparently, the Shulamite's dance had its desired effect. And she has danced long enough. It's time now to climb the palm tree and take hold of its branches. You know, in the Middle East at the time, in Solomon's time, palm trees were artificially fertilized. A worker would climb up one tree to extract pollen, and then he would climb up the other tree to fertilize the flower. And this is not far from Solomon's thoughts in all of this. He's thinking of climbing and fertilizing and so forth. The Shulamite speaks in verse 9. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. After having climbed the palm tree, the two lovers now have fallen asleep in each other's arms. And they're enjoying the sweet aftertaste. And she relishes his love. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Now before we leave the dance, let me just say a word about modesty and marriage. You remember, God created Adam and Eve naked and without shame. Sin forced clothes on us. And it became a curse for the man. I mean, think about this. Adam went from the perfect world, walking around naked with his wife, eating fruit all day, to suddenly having to buy clothes for her constantly. Sin's a curse, man. I mean, this is what's happened to us. And as long as sin exists in the world, certainly we have to wear clothes. But you know what? In the privacy of a trusting, loving unselfish, grace-filled marriage, clothes shouldn't be necessary. The Song of Solomon teaches that God wholeheartedly approves of nudity between a husband and his wife. Ladies, like the Shulamite, some of you can break the chill on your marriage by expressing a new aggressiveness toward your husband. I want you to think about this. When you initiate sex... When you greet him from work wearing nothing but your sandals. You cannot imagine the thrill you provide the old boy. Listen ladies. What a dozen red roses does for you. What a surprise weekend away. What a new diamond ring would do for you. The dance of the Mahanaim <laughs> would do for him. I guarantee it. Now, here's the fear that some wives possess, and I want to deal with this fear. Here's what you're thinking, some of you ladies. Man, if I show too much interest toward my husband, he's going to become more obsessed with sex than he already is. (laughs) But understand, that is seldom true. Question. When are you most obsessed with food? When are you most obsessed with food? When you're on a diet. (laughs) Go on a diet. Have somebody tell you that you can't eat. And see how obsessed with food you get. Your obsession with food dissipates when you know you can eat all of the goodies that you want. And the same is true for your husband's sexual appetites. Ladies, take the old boy off the diet... And he'll settle into a frequency that's comfortable for you both. Well, the Shulamite takes one more step to break the chill on her sex life. Notice third, she seeks out a new atmosphere for intimacy with her husband. She invites him in verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the great blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. She wants to take a vacation. Hey hey Solomon, let's return to the countryside where we first met, where we had our courtship. Let's enjoy the fertility of the springtime. There we'll rendezvous in a new venue and it'll spark a passion. She promises him in verse 13, the mandrakes give off a fragrance. Mandrakes were flowers that were thought to be aphrodisiacs. And at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. In other words, a change of scenery will promote new exploration. Oh, they'll do what they've always enjoyed, but the Shulamite has some new ideas up her sleeves. She says, let's try both new and old. Well, you know, a little variety never hurts. Never hurts to spice up your sex life, to maybe try something a little different. A a change of environment? Just mixing up the routine? Oh, oh my. I'll even say it maybe a change of position. A lot of these kinds of things can light a new spark. Don't be afraid to try new and old. Chapter 8 we're rolling. Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. Like the Shulamite, her brother was a country kid. And she knows King Solomon is more at home in the city. But if he'll just venture to the country, she'll make sure it's worth his while. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. Come on, Solomon, let's go to the country. There are pleasures awaiting you there. Now, apparently, she didn't have to twist her husband's arm. Solomon was all for it. In fact, he called the travel agent that very night. And in verse 3, he's now on vacation. He says, his left hand... She says, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Evidently, the moment they arrived, they headed straight for the hotel room. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And again, this warning, we've heard it before, sex is too powerful to play around with. You see, sex in the hands of two unmarried people is like pulling the pin on a grenade and then handing it to a baby. He's saying, don't even stir up sexual passion until you're married. Sex is a fire. In the fireplace of marriage, it warms the whole house. But outside the fireplace, it can be destructive. And there's a lot that it can burn down. Let me suggest, too, that this idea of a getaway to renew your love also applies to our relationship with God. You remember, on occasion, even Jesus would go up to the mountaintop to pray and to hear from His Father in heaven. I know one of the best ways for me to refocus spiritually and, and to just to sort of break the chill on my relationship with the Lord is, is to go away for, for a few hours or a few days just to get alone with the Lord, just me and him, just to spend some time with the Lord in, in a fresh place and in a fresh time. A holy getaway is also a great way for us to renew our relationship with Jesus. And then in verse 5, a relative sees the Shulamite. And at first, he doesn't recognize her. In fact, the last time he saw her, she was a shepherd girl. Now she's queen of Israel. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Once he recognizes her, he recalls the day that she was born. Apparently her mom delivered her under an apple tree. I mean, in the Shulamites' case, it was true. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And in essence, he's saying to the Shulamite, Man, I knew you when you were nothing, when you were just a little kid. She's giddy with love. She's the queen, and this comment, I'm sure, kept her humble. In verse 6, the Shulamite says to Solomon, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. And then verse 7 packs a powerful message. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. You know, Solomon and the Shulamite may have had a marriage made in heaven, but marriages, even marriages made in heaven, have to be lived out on earth. They had problems. All couples have problems. Every marriage has some rough waters to navigate, and yet real love endures. As 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 puts it, love never fails. We're told if a man would give give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. In other words, all of the world's riches are not as valuable as love. A lot of rich people got a lot of things, but don't have love. Ask them if this is true. They'll agree. All the world's riches are not as valuable as love. In verse 8, the Shulamite, her brothers speak. This is interesting. They say, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? Now this could be a flashback to their days growing up together. As a little girl... The Shulamite had yet to flower into a woman. And they had wondered, the brothers had wondered, who would want their sister? They they could have never imagined that one day she would be queen. But they say, if she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Her brothers apparently were her guardians. And they were committed to help her navigate courtship. Whether she was a wall and lacked a shapely figure or a door and had suitors knocking all the time, her brothers were going to help her find the right man. Natalie had that same blessing. Her brothers ran off many, many of those guys we didn't approve of. It was a good thing to have some brothers around. She chimes in, verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. The Shulamite grew up. And she became a gorgeous young woman, able to attract the attention of a king. Now Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. King Solomon owned vineyards that he would lease out to the locals. The Shulamite sees herself as a very valuable vineyard. Her siblings have been tending her for Solomon. They've been keeping her and preparing her for her husband. Now it's Solomon's turn to pay the bridal price to her brothers, just like the leasees would pay Solomon for the vineyard. Now it's It's Solomon's turn to pay the Shulamites' brothers the bridal price that um, they owe for for the Shulamite. And, And apparently 200 shekels was the price. Now Solomon responds, You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. In other words, since returning home there to Lebanon, the Shulamite had seen relatives and old friends, and she'd been going about and talking to everybody. But it's time for Solomon to hear her voice. These two lovebirds are on their second honeymoon. And the book closes with them at it again, man. Enjoying sexual intimacy, she invites him to climb her mountain. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag. On the mountains of spices. The song of Solomon. Sex as it should be. Read it. Apply it. Model it in your marriage. Your homework tonight is to go home. And sit down on the bed. You and your wife. And guys you read Solomon's part. And ladies, you read the Shulamites part. See how far you get. From God's perspective, sex is spiritual and it's sizzling. It's holy and it's hot. And as you read this book, let me leave you with one thought. Just remember, God isn't blushing. Father.